Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Shoftim, or the book of Judges as we know it in English, is the sequel to the book of Joshua. And part two of the meta-narrative of scripture that we call the former prophets. And Judges is this period of time with the Israelite society where there is no single leader like Moses or Joshua leading the entire people. Instead, the nation is led by a series of tribal judges which are meant to rule over the people. And their role is to provide leadership, to uphold justice, to ensure religious commitment, and to eradicate the external threats to Israel. Now, despite being called by Yahweh and empowered by His Spirit, the majority of these judges fail to meet the expectations of a leader set by Yahweh. None of these leaders really ever match up to Moses or Joshua. And with each successive judge that we encounter, their legacy is to leave the Israelite society even worse, as their commitment to following the Torah steadily erodes. Judges is one of the most bleakest and darkest books of the Bible that you can read. It's easily one of the most sickening, one of the most sickening passage, one of the most sickening narratives of all Scripture, and it's a warning about the consequences of a society who rejects Yahweh's commandments. Oh, my little clicky's not working. Next slide, please. Oh, next one. There we go. Judges is what Daniel Block calls, recounts what he, he terms the canonization of the Israelite society. That is, as the Israelites become increasingly wicked or canonized, idolatry, um, murder, Perversion, betrayal, rape and general unfaithfulness becomes the norm. Now, despite the heroic exploits of Deborah, Barak, Gideon and Samson, the true hero of the narrative in this bleak picture is always Yahweh. Now, he might not be the central character in every narrative we read, but he is there in the background overseeing everything. Judging the people based upon their behaviour. Now, if the punishment to the Canaanites in the book of Joshua was to be subject to harem, so if the Israelites mimic the behaviour of the Canaanites, then the curse of the covenant will fall upon them. They too will be subjected to harem. But Yahweh is When there is genuine repentance, he will graciously turn his favour and offer grace and mercy to a repentant people. And next slide. 
Now, one of the amazing things about Judges is how it's designed from a literary perspective. Now, one of the misconceptions that people have who read through Judges is just seeing that when you start a Judges chapter 1 and you conclude in its final chapter that you're reading history that begins here at point A and ends over here at point B. But what the author of Judges has done is he's structured the narrative in a, in a way that's called a spiral or a spiral or a circle composition. Now, if you were to add the combined years of all the judges that are mentioned in the book, the period would just be too long, 410 years. It's far too long between the time of Joshua and the first king, King Saul. Instead, what the author is doing by structuring his narrative in this spiral format is he is making a profound theological point. The narrative begins with a double introduction and finishes with a double conclusion. And these are connected. The first introduction provides this overview of the Israelites' failed conquest to eradicate the Canaanites from the land after Joshua's death. And then the second introduction, it recounts Israel's worship of foreign idols and gods. And the subsequent punishment for that. And then we get the 12 narrative cycles about the 12 judges who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the book concludes with a narrative about the worship of domestic idols. And then concludes with a narrative about civil war. We begin the book with a narrative about war against foreign nations and their worship of foreign idols. We conclude the book with a narrative about worshipping domestic idols and fighting amongst each other. And the point of all this is to spiral the descent of Israelites' Israelites society's Canaanization. And in keeping with this spiralling theme, as you can see in this as we go down, things get progressively worse as we read along. When we read about the first few judges here, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, things are okay. But then when we get to the second part of Gideon's narrative, this is where things start to go downhill. This is where the Israelites truly descend into chaos as we learn about Elimelech, Jephthah, and the famous strongman Samson. Um, Kay Lawson Younger, he notes that with each of the narratives, there's something really interesting. The more righteous the judge, the less words that are used. But the more wicked the judge, the more words are used to describe their behaviour. The point is to show just how terrible idolatry, sinfulness and wickedness truly is. And the basic narrative structure of each of the judge narrative, if you can flick the next slide, please, Brad. We have here, this is basically how it goes. The Israelites, they commit evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh sends an oppressive nation. The Israelites serve this nation for an X amount of years. The Israelites cry out for a deliverer. Yahweh raises up a judge. Yahweh places his spirit on the judge. Yahweh gives victory to the judge 
and the land experiences a time of rest while the judge is alive. But if you remember at the hinge point with the Gideon narrative, after Gideon's time of being a judge, this narrative structure breaks down. Post-Gideon, instead of the land experiencing rest for X amount of years, there is no rest. Forty years in Israelite mindset was the time for an entire generation. And for the good judges, the land experiences rest for some 40 plus years. For a number of generations, they experienced the blessings of Yahweh for being obedient. Post-Gideon, there is no rest. In fact, these judges don't even rule for a generation. This is how chaotic things become. And as the nation breaks down, what the author is doing in destroying his own structure for each of the judge narratives is to highlight how chaotic things are becoming. As the original readers, we're given a first-hand taste into the canonization of Israelite society. It is not pretty to read about. And it's not pretty to read about from a literary perspective. If I can have the next slide, please. Now, to highlight the timing of this spiral narrative, we go to the opening events of Judges chapter 1, and we look at the events from Judges chapter 18. Now, at the end of the book of Joshua, after Joshua's death, there's this really random aside, which tells us here in Joshua chapter 24, verse 33, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died and was buried. And his son, Phineas took over. Now what that is telling us now is that the judging era is the era of the grandchildren. The great Moses is dead. The great Joshua is dead. We are now in the third generation. Now when we begin judges, the only positive judge we encounter is Othniel from the tribe of Judah. And in the one of the final depraved accounts which we'll get to in a number of weeks, we're told about a priest of the Danites whose name is Jonathan. Now look at Jonathan's um, ancestors. He's the son of Jerushon, the son of Moses. This wicked priest that we'll learn about later is the grandson of the great Moses. And then in the second terrible narrative to conclude the book, we're told here Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, was ministering before Israel. And the point of all this as readers is to say, when Othniel was alive and kicking and doing righteous things, over here the Israelites have already descended into chaos. Joshua, before his death, he predicted that the Israelites would not serve Yahweh. Joshua probably didn't predict that their descent would happen within a lifetime of his death. And the book ends with these ominous words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The point of the narrative is that the Israelites desperately need a king. They desperately need someone to rule them. 
And in the opening chapter of Judges, we'll point out the need for a king comes from the tribe of Judah. They need a king in the model of Othniel. Now to understand some of the theology of Judges, we have to understand the grand meta-narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Yahweh told the woman that her seed, that, the, that there'd be conflict between her seed and the seed of the serpent. But eventually the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now the crushing of the, um, the serpent is represented in uh, let me start again. The serpent is represented through the evil forces that interact with Yahweh's people throughout the narrative. So the serpent seed, for lack of a better word, is represented by people like Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the Canaanites. And Genesis sets up two tribes that may have this prestigious title of crushing the head of the serpent. We have Judah. And Joseph. Next slide, please. Now, for those who know a bit about Judah, or don't know about Judah and Joseph, we'll start with Joseph. Joseph is the 11th son of the great patriarch Jacob, but he is the firstborn to his favourite wife, Rachel. Now, despite Joseph's status, he is treated like, by Jacob as a king. And he is given great favour and prestige and he is given the coat of many colours, which leads to his brother's jealousy and throwing him into a well before being sold into slavery in Egypt. However, this all works out for Yahweh's plans and purposes. Now, in Egypt, Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, in line with the biblical precedent, The youngest son, Ephraim, is blessed over the oldest son, Manasseh. Now, Joseph himself, he has a number of dreams. Now, he dreams that twice, that he sees his brothers bowing down before him in some royal role. This sets up this tension. Is Joseph going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent? But then ultimately, kind of out of the blue, Jacob's fourth-born son, Leah, we are told in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 there, that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, when you read Judges chapter 1, you'll see the focus on this account is on these two tribes, Judah and Joseph. And this is Why? These are the two tribes. These are the most powerful tribes. In fact, the great Joshua himself comes from the tribe of Ephraim. He is part of um, of Joseph's descendants. So now as we come here, we open up this passage in Judges chapter 1 with the death of Joshua. And the focus is on Judah's role in being the light to the nations, to holding the scepter. That will never depart and ruling the nations. For in a very, very dark and disturbing book, Judah is the role model to look for the bright light, the key to leadership that Israel so desperately needs. 
If you have your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen, we turn to Judges chapter 1 from verse 1. Now, in the, towards the conclusion of Joshua, Joshua in Joshua's chapter 13 to 21, he laid out, which is rather boring for us, all the tribal allotments, all the inheritance for the Israelites. Now, as part of this inheritance, some of the tribes, because of their conquest, had already received their lands. But there's a number of tribes who had yet to possess what Joshua had promised to them. And Joshua 1, it recounts, This fulfilling of Joshua's inheritance, of going out and capturing the inheritance that is rightfully theirs. And the tribe to lead the way in battle is Judah. And when Judah goes off to battle, Yahweh promises that they will have victory. In fact, their victory is so certain. It is like they already hold the land in their hand already. But what's fascinating about Judah, despite being told that Yahweh is going to go forth with them and the land is already there, the first thing they do is they form an alliance with their brother Simeon. Gives us just a hint. Even the righteous Judah isn't entirely obedient. For in a sense, they're not necessarily trusting in Yahweh's might, in Yahweh's power, in Yahweh's word. But in the size of their army. But nevertheless, Judah is triumphant. As we read, they go to this place called Bezek. And there they defeat 10,000 men and capture its king, a man called Adonai Bezek. Or literally, Lord of Bezek. Now, this account of Adonai Bezek, it seems rather random and rather Violent. For when they capture Adonai Bezek, the first thing they do is they cut off his th- big thumb, his thumbs, and his big toe. Now, what's the point in telling us all this? What's the point of telling us this little narrative about cutting off this king's thumbs and toes? Well, in Canaan, kings were not just kings, but also priests. And they led the people in worship. Now, from a priestly perspective, your thumb represented the hands that would offer sacrifices, represented the hands that would invoke the divine blessing upon the people, while your big toe represented the feet that would stand at the holy place and offer sacrifices at the sacred shrine. Now, we know nothing about this king. But what we do know is that he has defeated 70 other kings. Which tells us that Adonai Bezek had extreme power. He was an incredibly powerful ruler. But secondly, what it tells us in defeating Adonai Bezek is that Judah has defeated this wicked priestly king that was leading the Canaanites in pagan worship. And by overcoming Adonai Bezek, the Israelites had destroyed, the the tribe of Judah had destroyed this wicked monarchy hierarchy in the land. And what they're doing is establishing the Torah in Canaan. Adonai Bezek, by losing his thumbs and his toes, is now reduced to the status of a dog begging under the table. But what Judah 
has done. It's they're preparing the reader for the fulfillment of Jacob's words in Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. It's the intention of Yahweh's people to rule the land through obedience to the Torah, not obedience to a wicked priestly king. And the second significant victory told about with Judah happens at Debir. We can go to the next slide. There you go. From there, the, the tribe of Judah gathers at Debir, or a place called Kiriath Sethar. Now, we have no idea about the conditions of the battle at Debir, but we must assume that they were quite challenging. For Judah's tribal leader, Caleb, a valiant warrior in his own right, sets a challenge to the rest of his tribesmen. The one who leads the battle against Debir and captures it, they can keep the land not only as a dowry, but they can marry his daughter, Aksa. Now, from a modern perspective, it seems that Aksa is merely just a pawn in the game of men. It's reinforcing the patriarchy of Israelite society and its detriment to women. Now, from a cultural context, from the Israelite perspective, Caleb simply wants his daughter to marry a man who is faithful to the covenant of Yahweh. A man who trusts Yahweh so much, he will leave the battle in very difficult conditions. And while Aksar is not given a choice in the man who she would marry, she would undoubtedly see great honour in being married to a courageous war hero. And the man who fights Dibler is ironically Othniel, her cousin. Now following Othniel's victory, we're given this another really random account where Aksar goes to the father hopping off a donkey and asks for a field. Now, one of the fundamental issues with the land of Dibur, as we learn, is that it's located in the Negev, or the desert. Now, as we know in Australia, water is lacking. And in the ancient Near East, when you have no dams and running water, it makes, having, it makes keeping your land fertile very difficult. And what Aksar has recognised is that she needs to enhance the value of the land her and her husband possess. Not so it has greater resale value, for tribal lands could never be sold in Israel. She is ensuring that her descendants would be fruitful and multiply. That if the land has adequate access to water, then her descendants will be able to fulfil the covenant of Yahweh's blessing. And Caleb honours her faith. He doesn't just give her one field with water. He gives her what's described as the upper and lower springs. All this land that they now possess will be adequately watered. He is ensuring the longevity of their land. And while it seems that this is just another irrelevant narrative, we have to understand the background of these three characters have the next slide, please. So Caleb, while possessing great honour amongst the tribe of Judah, for he was one of the other two spies along with Joshua, who declared that we can go into the land, that the land itself, that they have giants, but we can overcome it. All the way back 
in Numbers chapter 13. But what makes Caleb an even more interesting character? We read in Numbers chapter 32. Caleb is identified as the son of Jephunneh, the Kizanite. That just seems random to us. What does that mean any to us to be related to the Kizanite? Well, in Genesis chapter 36 verse 11, we learn that Kenaz is an Edomite chief, a descendant of Esau. You had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob and Esau. Esau was not part of the promise to Yahweh. So what these three characters, Caleb, Othniel and Aksa, represent, they're non-native Israelites. They're outsiders. But in fact, they're so righteous, they're incorporated into the tribe of Judah. And this is the irony of the narrative. As the Israelites continually spiral out of control, as they become increasingly canonized, the only three righteous characters in the book are in fact non-Israelites. And the faithfulness of outsiders is reinforced even further in the very next verse, in verse 16, which informs us that the Kenites which we're told are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, settled with Judah. The irony is Caleb, Othniel, Aksa, the Kenites, all of these non-Israelite people are in fact blessed by Yahweh. It raises that tension that the book of Joshua produced with Rahab and Achan. Who is a true Israelite? It's not necessarily related by your lineage, but by your spiritual obedience. At the next slide, please. And in concluding Judah's narrative, we're told that they are... Actually, no, can I go back one, please? Sorry. Too last. And in concluding Judah's narrative, we're told that they are successful in a number of places. But Judah has a single failure. They fail to drive out the inhabitants of the plains. And their chariots. Now, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, that we see in this relief, the chariot was the most superior technology, was the most superior technological army vehicles. Foot soldiers versus chariots had no hope. And so in Judah, in leaving the, the, foot, the, um, the plains with their chariots, it makes sense from a military perspective. But we have to remember that Yahweh has promised that the land has gone into Judah's hands. In fact, Joshua himself promised that though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, though they are strong, you can drive them out. Now this is Judah's one major fault in an otherwise flawless record. And the fault is not in Yahweh. He can overcome chariots and horses. The fault is clearly in Judah's lack of faith. Now, if Judah finishes with one sole failure, the irony is the other great tribe, Joseph, it has one sole victory at Bethlehem. But it's a marred victory. When the spies from Joseph go up to check out Bethel or Luz, as it is known. 
They find a man. In a similar way with the spies did at Jericho. They make a deal with this man. That if they show them the way to get into the city, they will treat this man kindly in exchange. Uh, they will treat this man kindly in exchange for access to the city. Now, while this has precedent in the book of Joshua, there's one fundamental flaw here. Rahab, when she helped the spies, she was incorporated into the people of Israel. What happens here at Luz is this man and his family go off to the region of the Hittites and there he produces another city called Luz. What they have done at this moment is allowed the Canaanites to continue on, to strengthen their enemies. And following the report of Joseph, this is where things turn really grim. If we can go to the next slide, please. We see here in the red, this refrain just throughout. They did not drive out the inhabitants. All the, all the remaining tribes do not drive out the inhabitants. They do not drive out the inhabitants. And it goes on and on and on. To the final tribe, Dan, where Dan doesn't even fight against it, but is in fact pressed out of his territory and is living in the mountains. What we're seeing here is the spiraling and circular nature of the narrative. If we can go to the next slide, please. We see here, we began with the narrative with Judah. Victorious over the Canaanites, but Judah allowing, with Judah living in the mountains and allowing some of the Canaanites to live in the plain. Then we learn about Joseph and the other tribes' failure to live to drive out the Canaanites, which results in the Canaanites living amongst the Israelites. And then we conclude with the Canaanites are victorious over Dan, but they allow Dan to live in the mountains and not in the plain. Can you see the literary connection there? Judah living in the mountains, Dan living in the mountains. They're in the exactly same position. Despite the righteousness of Judah, despite the wickedness of Dan, they're in exactly the same conditions. The Canaanites still possess the land. The people of Israel do not have their inheritance. And eventually we'll see the Canaanites will become the dominant people to live in the land of promise. Now throughout chapter 1, the verb Allah or go up or ascend has been used as this quasi sort of technical term to me to invade. When Judah goes up, it means that they're going to invade. Now in chapter 2, which Sarah read out, we learn the angel of Yahweh goes up from Gilgal. This is an ominous sign. So the angel is going up not as a friend of the Israelites. He is going up as their enemy. For the Israelites, as we have learned, have not driven out the Canaanites. And the angel makes this crystal clear. It was Yahweh who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It was Yahweh who brought the blessings of the covenant upon the people. And as part of the covenant, there were two fundamental things the Israelites could not do. One was to make a covenant with the people. 
and two, they were to smash down their idols. And while chapter 1 makes no reference to either of these events happening, this is the assumption that we must make. They formed covenants, the people they were meant to form covenants with, and they did not smash down their wicked idols. And in response to this wickedness, Yahweh promises that he will no longer drive out the nations before them. The people are going to lose their inheritance. They will be like them, inheritanceless. As James Hamilton points out, ironically, the curse upon Adam was that the land would become full of thorns and thistles. Now the Israelites in the new Eden, they'll experience a similar curse. The Canaanites will be like thorns and briars, snares at their sides, and, and their gods and Their gods and the nations will ruin the land just as Adam and Eve's act of disobedience ruined the Garden of Eden. It was in Egypt the Israelites groaned under the whips of Pharaoh. Now the Israelites will once again groan under the oppression of the nations who will subject them. So Yahweh's intention when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, was to create a society, a society where justice reigned. And always connected with justice was this idea of righteousness. If you spoke about justice, you implicitly spoke about righteousness. The land of Canaan was meant to be transformed, a place that was where, where people fulfilled the Torah, where justice and righteousness ruled. And this was the role of the judges to ensure that there was justice in the land. But as we've seen clearly here in Judges chapter 1, the people are incapable of doing this. Even the righteous Judah has faults. Yahweh promised the land on the condition of obedience. And if Yahweh can give the people the land so easily, he can take it away through an act of disobedience. And after the angels rebuke, the people weep in sorrow and offer a sacrifice of forgiveness. And perhaps, perhaps at this moment, things will change. Perhaps the Israelites will heed Yahweh's threat and remove the Canaanites from within their presence. But we know the end story. The land of milk and honey will become the new Egypt as the snares, thorns and gods of the nation destroy it. Now as Christians, what do we practically learn from Judges chapter 1 to chapter 2 verse 5? It does serve as a warning to a society that rejects God and his principles as its foundation. Carl Henry, writing 30 years ago, stated, Radical secularism grips the life of Western man more firmly than at any time since the pre-Christian pagan era. Still more disconcerting is the fact that modernity deliberately experiences this new immorality as an option superior to the inherited Judeo-Christian alternative. It's a worrying thing. People would rather follow secular paganism 
than the values set in the Bible. One of the problems with society is a lack of the fear of the Lord, which is the foundation of all wisdom. And that's where we can see the demise of Western society. As we've ceased to fear the Lord, things spiral out of control. And Judges gives us a glimpse into a society that rejects Yahweh, where people who forget their identity are transformed into Canaanites. And Judges scarily shows us this disintegration doesn't happen over centuries. It happens within one lifetime of the death of a righteous ruler. However, the danger of reading Judges chapter 1 is to think, well, the problem is those out there, those who aren't obedient to the commands of God. And we can think that the book is written for them. And that's true. But we have to remember this is what is known as the former prophets. This is prophetic teaching aimed for us. And as the children of the new covenant, Judges is written for us as the church. And it demands a response from all of us. K. Lawson Younger, in his commentary, argues that the best application for us to this passage is to ask ourselves, how does the disobedience of the Israelites reveal my disobedience in regards to God's commands? If the Israelites can fail as a collective, how, as a church, have we failed collectively? As we see around us, the royal commissions, the scandals, the church is not this beacon of light that it should be. In some ways, the church looks a lot like the Israelites at the time of the judges. However, one of the good things about the gospel is our failure is not the end. For like judges in the midst of darkness, there is a shining beacon. And it's still the tribe of Judah. For Judah's greatest son, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked on this earth, may not have cut off the thumbs or big toes of a wicked ruler, but symbolically he cut off the thumbs and big toes of the greatest evil that faces humanity, sin and death. See, Jesus Christ, the tribe of Judah, crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. For like Axa, Jesus Christ desired a greater inheritance for, his, for those who would become part of his family. Not a piece of farmland in Canaan, but the restored paradise of this earth. To live in the creation intention that God wanted for his people. A place where water flows abundantly. A place of milk and honey. A place where people can drink deeply and never thirst again. This is the ultimate blessing of the covenant Yahweh enacted with the Israelites to establish a place of eternal blessings where there is no more pain, tears and suffering. The era of the judge was to ensure that the land experienced the justice and righteousness that Yahweh intended. And while the judges failed miserably in bringing this state to Israel, 
the true hero of the narrative is and always is God. And it points us to the day when the ultimate judge will come. And friends, as we go through this incredibly difficult book, that is the light we cling to. The light of God who is the hero. The light of the greatest son of Judah, Jesus of Nazareth. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this book. Lord, at times very complex and difficult and hard to digest. But Lord, we see that in the midst of the chaos and the spiralling nature of Israelite society, you were there unchangeable in your holiness. And so, Lord, today as we look around our society, we see just the wickedness and the depravity. But, Lord, we know that you are still in control, that you have overcome the evil. You crushed the head of the serpent through Jesus Christ. So as in that, we look forward to, we long for. And, Lord, we know that when we fail, that we have Jesus, who is the one that gives us the great gift of salvation. So it's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.